And I would invite you, if you have a copy of the Bible with you, to turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10, although the words will be on the screen. I want to begin by asking you uh, a simple question. I'm reminded there is a difference between simple and easy, right? You know what I mean? Um, Imagine if you are doing an engine overhaul and in the midst of doing this, there's a rusty bolt. Uh, It is simple to say, remove the rusty bolt. It may not be easy to do that. Right? There's, a, there's a difference between simple and easy. But here's my simple question. Maybe simple to ask, maybe not so easy to answer. Simple question is this. What is the gospel? If you were asked, what is the gospel? And you had 60 seconds to answer that question. I wonder, like right now, what is running through your head? How would you answer that question? What is the gospel? This is an incredibly important question because, uh, frankly, the, 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 the central thing that our churches and ourselves need to have settled in our hearts and in our minds is what is the biblical gospel. We will only be healthy insofar as we are able to understand and share what that thing is. There are a couple of ways we might be tempted to respond. We might be tempted to say, well, the gospel is like the plan of salvation, that those two things are just equal to one another. You know, the Romans road or the, or the ABCs, the admit, believe, and confess. But is the gospel simply how we get saved? Is that all the gospel is? Isn't it more than that? Secondly, and I like this one a little better, the gospel is a, is a way of life. It's not only something that happens to us in the past, but it's the lifeblood for how we interpret our lives and live every day moving forward, fueled by the gospel. I think this answer is better. It reminds us that the gospel is not just conversion. The gospel is not just how we, in a manner of speaking, punch our ticket to heaven. I want to put to you one more option. The the gospel is this. God is the gospel. God himself and who he is, is the good news. I believe that this is what Nehemiah 9 and 10 teach, and I I hope to be able to, to convince you of that, but let's start here. As the people, the people are now safely behind the walls, in Jerusalem. God has allowed them to come back home. They're now safe there and they immediately turn and praise God. They ask Ezra to come onto the scene and to read the Bible and they begin to worship and they begin to repent. They're they're reminded of how they got here. They're reminded of the sin that made it necessary for them to be exiled in the first place. 
And then they remember how God has been kind to rescue them, even though they were undeserving. The truth that I want you to consider today from Nehemiah 9 and Nehemiah 10 is this. God is the gospel. Who he is is on full display at every turn in Nehemiah chapter 9 and chapter 10. His character is at the center. And while the people are certainly thankful for what God has done for them, it's not what God has done for them that makes them happy. It's who God is. And friends, this is incredibly important for us to get this right because we do not come to God for what He can do for us. That is not the gospel. We come to God for who He is. We do not love Him because of the gifts that He gives simply. We should love Him because of who He is. He is the center of our worship. And the people here model this for us. They get back into the city. They're safe behind the walls and they begin to praise God, but not because of what God has done for them. They begin to praise Him for who He is. They're not fixated on His gifts. They're not fixated on His benefits. They're not fixated on what He can do for them. They're fixated on who He is. Now, of course... A generous God, by nature, gives gifts. And so we should not somehow despise God's gifts. I don't want to draw too hard of a line between these two things. But friends, it's enough for us to say that the reason that we should come to God and the reason that we should follow Him is not because of what He might be able to do for us. But we come to Him and we love Him and we serve Him because we are fixated on God Himself. He is the treasure. He is the goal. I want to read to you from chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and we'll see if I can convince you that this is the case. Nehemiah chapter 9 begins this way. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth. This means that they are demonstrating that they are sorrowful for their sin. All right, they're, they're dressed to repent is basically what's happening here. And they have earth on their heads. Anytime somebody's got dirt on their heads in the Old Testament, it, they, are, they are demonstrating that they are low and humble. Verse 2. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord. What was it that enabled them to see their need? What was it that prompted them to repent? The word of God. That's why we seek here to be word focused. And they did this for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession. I mean, can you imagine spending a quarter of the day confessing your sins? I know for myself, I could spend a quarter of the day confessing my sins and not even scratch the surface. And these people do that. For a quarter of the day, they make confession and worship the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, uh, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. 
Then the Levites, the same people, or actually a number, another group of people, they said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And then look, why is it that they're standing? Why is it that they're giving God praise? Why is it that they're confessing their sins? Verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host and the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and you gave him the name of Abraham. Friends, what we are seeing here is incredibly powerful. The people are having a genuine, honest-to-goodness encounter with who God is. How? Through the Word. Ezra stood up, the last chapter, chapter 7 and chapter 8. Ezra stands up, reads the Bible. The people see who they are in light of a holy God. And now the people, basically what's breaking out here is a revival. We think of revival as being like everybody gets excited and maybe some people shout and everybody leaves feeling happy. The revival that's taking place in Nehemiah chapter 9 is one where the people have seen who they are and their terrible condition in light of a holy God. And now they are humbling themselves before him. They've had a genuine, honest-to-goodness encounter with God, and they realize the difference between me and Him. And this is against our nature. This is against our nature, isn't it? We are by nature, the Bible says of us, we are by nature a self-justifying people. Right? We're all the time trying to boost our own self-confidence and remind ourselves that we're not all that bad. And we're very good at changing the scorecards so that we can come out looking good on the other side. And perhaps, compared to who I was 10 years ago, I look pretty good. Or perhaps compared to that person over there, or this individual over here, perhaps compared to someone else... I look pretty good, but when we have a genuine, honest-to-goodness encounter with who God is, His character, His nature, mediated to us, communicated to us through His Word, there is no getting around how sorry we measure up to a holy God. And what do the people do? They do the only thing that is appropriate. They repent. They turn back. They seek God's Face. They bow down and worship and they say, God, we turn away from our ways. Would you forgive us? This is the first point. The first point that we learn is God is always just, even when he judges our sin. But look, at the center, at the center of all of this is what? It's the character of God. It's the character of God that fuels this reflection and this repentance and this worship. It would be, I mean, it's amazing that after they enter the city and the first thing they do is they get together, the Bible says they meet as one man and they stand out and they listen to the word of God preached to them for way too long by our standards. And then they begin to give God praise and they don't thank God for letting them come back to the city. They don't thank God for protecting them from the foes. 
They don't thank God for giving their hands speed as they built the wall. Instead, they thank God for who he is. For them, God is the treasure. He's the goal. He's the point. God and his character are at the center. And friends, let me try to apply this. Let's see how this uh, can touch down in our lives. Ask yourself this probing question. What area of your life do you need to adjust because God is who he says he is? Right? In what way do you need to take the truth of who God is and apply it to your situation? Let me give you a couple examples about how that might work. Could it be that at the bottom of your anxiety is a lack of trust that God is good, that God is powerful, that God loves you, and that He is sovereign. We are what we believe, right? And if we don't believe that God is really good, if we don't believe that God is in control, if we don't believe something about his character, we will naturally become anxious because then the weight of the world rests on us. We are what we believe. Could it be that, that, that the reason that you are tempted not to be involved or engaged in serving God or advancing the Great Commission in some way is because you really don't believe that there's going to be sweetness there waiting on you when you do roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty? Could it be that the reason that you might tend toward anger is because you don't trust in God as the just judge? So you have to be angry now and you have to get even now and you have to get your revenge now because God, we can't trust God to set things right. A misunderstanding about who He is shows up in our life in all these different ways. Could it be that the, the reason that you are pursuing a relationship or, or some kind of pattern of behavior that you know is biblically wrong is because you have concluded that it would be more fulfilling and more satisfying to have what you think you want and not have God than it would be to have God but not have what you think you want. What we believe about God will show up in our life. We are what we believe. And here at the center of the people's return to God is his character in full view. I want to direct your attention to later in the chapter. Later in chapter 9, beginning in verse 32. If you'll look with me, chapter 9, verse 32, we see another example of the people's humility. Look what they say to God. I mean, man, this is, this is a pattern to, for us to follow. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers. Since all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. And we have acted wickedly. The Bible goes on 
as they humble themselves. But friends, this is very seldom how we are tempted to respond. When we get ourselves into a bind, we clench our fist and cry out to God, God, why me? Right? Even when it was the consequences of our own actions that got us into that little pickle to begin with. The people here say, God, we remember the 70 years that we were being punished for our sins. And instead of saying God was just a little too harsh and just a little too hard-nosed, we are looking our sin and we are looking God's character square in the face and we are saying, God, you got it right. You have been righteous and good to us and it was us that sinned. We acted wickedly. This just gets us back to the main point. God is the gospel. God is the gospel. Even when he has to discipline us, he does it for our good so that we might be drawn back to him. Do you think that the people would be in this condition of humility if they had not had to walk through the 70 years to wake them up? God in His kindness allowed them to be gone for 70 years to reflect on what they had done and to reflect on His perfect character. They were a constantly wayward people and God showed His love to them by disciplining them. Friends, when we see God for who He is, we too are able to say, God, whatever you give me from your hand, I will receive it because I know that it comes from a good and holy God who is for me and who loves me. But friends, consider the alternative. If God is our vending machine. Have you ever seen somebody pound their fist on a vending machine? You know, because the little bag of Cheetos got stuck in between the coal thing and the glass, you know, and if I can just get enough vibration in there, maybe I can shake that thing loose and it'll fall down. That, if, if we have this view of God that he basically exists for us, we will get angry and we will start beating on the vending machine of God saying, I put my quarter in. I paid my tithe. I went on that mission trip. I taught that Sunday school class. God, why aren't you doing for me what I want? But if God is the gift and if he is the prize, then we can be content and satisfied because even if everything else in our life goes wrong, we get God. And he is the goal. And he is the only one who matters. God is totally just. Even when he has to discipline us, even when hard days come, God's character hasn't changed. God is the gospel. Not his benefits. Not even his gifts. Not even heaven. God. It's the reason we want to be in heaven. Not just to avoid the alternative. I'm going to go to heaven because God is there. He's the one that we've fallen in love with. Not just a, a decent eternal deal. Secondly, I want to point this out to you. Another beautiful part 
of God's character. God is merciful to all who will turn to him. God is merciful to all who will turn to him. Let, let me try to set it up this way. I've just done the hard news, right? The news that, that God is, is, is good and his character demands that he punish sin, right? God's character demands that he punish sin. I, I just recently saw an example of, of like a local sheriff, and I can't even remember where, if it was back home or here more locally or somewhere, about a sheriff who, who, who basically said, friends, or maybe, maybe it was a, a, a town police chief who said, friends, we as the police department are doing everything we can to keep your streets safe. Earlier today, or earlier, later last week, we arrested a repeat offender who has a history of violent offense. We arrested him, we, we booked him, we took him before the judge, and the judge let him out on, on bail that afternoon. He went out and repeat offended, right? And everybody gets angry, right? Because it seems like an, inju an unjust judge. Someone is just sweeping stuff under the rug. And, and so while it's true that God does not sweep our sin under the rug, He is just and He is good even when He has to discipline us, even when He has to punish our sin, we cannot stop here. It is a frightening thing if that's all God is, is a just judge, because we know that we deserve justice. We deserve His wrath. If God is really a just judge and He's not going to sweep our sin under the rug, that means we get hell if we get what we deserve. Second truth that we see in Nehemiah 9 is that God is merciful to all who will turn to Him. Verse 16. You read with me beginning in verse 16. The Bible says this, the people are just kind of confessing how many generations they've been wayward. And they're, they're being very honest to God. They say, but they and our fathers, they acted presumptuously and they stiffened their neck and they did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and they were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. In other words, they didn't know who you were, God. They saw, but they didn't believe. But they stiffened their neck and they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You know how many times the Old Testament repeats that little phrase? Oh, man, it's all throughout it. I just take a highlighter and highlight every time that little phrase, God, you are a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It shows up in my favorite psalm, Psalm 103. And you did not forsake them. Here's the people saying, we were wayward. Our fathers were wayward. We were sinful. We were rebellious. And yet, God, you did not change. You were still merciful. You were just waiting on us to turn back to you. Do you, do you see God's great patience with sinners? I mean, friends, some of us are, are only still breathing today because God is getting, giving us an opportunity to make something right. He's being patient with us. His great patience and His long-suffering, to use an old King James word. We need to be careful about how we think about God's patience. Listen to this. This will not be on the screen, but just listen to these words from Romans 2. Do you suppose, old man, that... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Can, can I ask, how are you tempted to interpret or how are you tempted to respond to God's patience? We must be very careful here. It's easy to believe, isn't it? that when we are living outside of the will of God, but yet our lives are still going pretty well, that that means that God must approve of what I'm doing and how I'm living. Like, it's, it's easy to mistake God's patience for His approval, isn't it? I mean, if, if, you're, if you're walking wayward from the Lord, but you still got the car and you still got the wife and you still got the, 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 the truck and the boat and the vacation and, and you're walking away from the Lord, it's easy to think, well, God must be pleased with me. I mean, life is going pretty well. Doesn't he give good people good things and bad people bad things? Let me tell you a story. When I was in high school, it was a very popular place to go mudding. Okay? I don't think that I have to explain to anybody in western Kentucky what mudding is. Okay? There was this very popular place full of mud holes. It was on this riverfront. I mean, it was like this little dirt road that followed the river. It was beautiful and, you know, fun at the same time. And there was this man who owned it, and he did not set up a gate to the entrance of this place where people could take four-wheelers and pickup trucks and get in a lot of trouble on his property. And for a long time, people just came and went as they pleased. They just went right through. There were two posts, but no gate in between them. He just hadn't set up a gate. Don't know why. And people just kind of came and went. Nobody ever got in trouble. The owner never called the police on anybody, never confronted anybody, never put up a gate. And so after a while, people just begin to get comfortable. And everybody would show up down there, Rockford, at the riverfront, waterhole, you know, and have a lot of fun until one week. When all of a sudden, word got out that you don't need to go mudding down there anymore. And why? Well, he hadn't put up a gate, and he hadn't called the police. But some poor soul who took their truck through a mud hole found that someone had placed down, wedged down in the mud below the water where you couldn't see them, these long wooden boards with nails driven up through the bottom of them. And some poor soul became the example that you don't come trespassing. I know I don't have a gate. I know I'm not going to call the cops. But don't mistake my patience for my approval. Right? God is merciful and patient. He longs to give us fullness of life. It's the enemy who comes to steal and kill and destroy. And friends, I would submit to you that if you are living outside of the will of God, but life is still going well, it's because the enemy, Satan, has every intention and he has every incentive to try to convince you to stay comfortable in your situation. Life will still go well with you, he'll, he'll whisper in your ear. Life will still go well with you if you live however you want to. See? You've been living this way for six months and nothing bad has happened. Friends, don't mistake God's patience for His approval. Look at verses 26 and 27. Verses 26 and 27. The Bible says this, Nevertheless, they were disobedient. And they rebelled against you. This, these are the people talking about their dads and granddads and their ancestors. 
They rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Friends, God, just like he was in Nehemiah chapter 9, is still willing to send a savior to all who will cry out to God for mercy. He is merciful to everyone who will turn to him. The Bible says in the New Testament, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means you know that you don't have any right to be before God. Blessed are those people who know that they haven't earned a thing. They're poor in spirit. The Bible says theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In other words, blessed are you when you weep over your sins because the cross comes in and reminds you that no matter what you have done, God will dry every tear from your eyes if you turn to Him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I'll leave you with this last point. Number three, knowing God demands action. Chapter 10 is a chapter full of names and things that happen, these obligations to the covenant. I'm only going to make note of a few of them, but we see in the very last verse of chapter 9, the people say, hey, because of all this, because of all this, God, we will make a covenant with you. Chapter 9, verse 38. And then it goes into chapter 10 where the people make this covenant and they covenant to do a few things. Number one, verse 29, they covenant to walk in God's law. Number two, they covenant to worship God. That's verse 34. They covenant to worship God. In verses 35 through 37, they, they, they commit to obey God with their money. It's, a, it's amazing. They, they see that knowing God demands practical, tangible action. Walking in God's law, worshiping God, and even reorienting how they deal with their time and money. Here's how this can touch down for us. For the people here in chapters 9 and 10, they see that knowing God is not just some kind of mental exercise. It flows out into transformed living. I want to highlight this. Why is it so important to get this, that God himself is the gospel? That the goal of our lives is not simply heaven. The goal of our lives is not simply Peace, the goal of our lives is not simply security and safety, but the goal of our lives is that we get God. Yes, God provides heaven. Yes, God gives peace. Yes, God gives security, a kind of security and a kind of safety. But coming to God is an, is an, is an exercise in seeing that He is good. And he is worth pursuing. And his benefits are just extra. 
See, co coming to God for the benefits, it allows us to idolize those things. I want to be safe. I want to be secure. I, I want to, to, to get heaven one day, or I want to have a life of peace. We, we begin to think of God as just a way to get those things that we really want. But when we think of God as the thing that we want, that is when we will find ourselves to be biblical Christians. God fears. So Christian, I would say this to you. Sacrifice. Yes. Give. Have your devotional time. Go on that mission trip. Adopt that child. But don't do it to get a blessing from God. Instead, do it because you have already found God to be the blessing. He's the treasure. He's the one that is worth pursuing. So yes, live out of that, but don't come to God as if He's a vending machine where we get from Him something that we want aside from Him. God is the gospel and nothing else. If you're thinking to yourself, you know, You've never come to Christ in the first place. You, you've never confessed Him as, as your master. I would encourage you, follow Him today. He is worth it. He is the treasure. Yes, He brings benefits, but He is sweeter than the benefits. And friends, let me, let me just give you this example to leave with. My grandfather gave me many gifts in his life. You know, I still own some things that belong to him. I have a Bible that he purchased. The only thing he ever used that Bible for was for doing weddings. And so I have that Bible. It sits on my shelf. That's the only time that I ever use that Bible is when I perform a wedding. I have all of these gifts. I have his paperweight, and it sits on my bookshelf. And I love it. It reminds me of him. I have his Bible that he was given in 1951 when he was ordained. In Asheville, North Carolina, I have all these gifts, but I would throw them all in the fire if I could just have five more minutes with Granddaddy. Because knowing the gift giver is better than having the gifts. Knowing God is the goal. Not getting from Him other things. If you're a Christian, I would encourage you, see God this way. Pursue Him and you will find that you will get His benefits. If, you, if you're here today and just honestly in your own soul, you're like, I'm not a Christian. I haven't turned to Christ yet. Let me assure you, as everyone else who has ever found God to be all satisfying, let me assure you that turning to Him will never disappoint. He really does satisfy. Let's pray.